In a study conducted by Women in Law and Development in Africa, it reported that there has been an increase of 70% in gender-based violence cases in Zimbabwe during the pandemic. It is believed that a lot of sexual violence cases are not being reported, especially those involving children. One of the reasons why sexual violence victims and survivors do not report these cases is because they lack trust in the criminal justice system and are scared of the secondary trauma which victims and survivors often suffer at the hands of local authorities, including the police and healthy practitioners when they attempt to report cases. In some cases, where survivors have tried to report these cases, the police have failed them as they did not believe them and instead advised them to deal with such issues as family disputes, not criminal cases. Many victims are reluctant to come forward because of the pressure from society that views sexual violence as a taboo. Currently, during the pandemic, victims and survivors are putting up with sexual violence as they are scared of losing financial support from perpetrators. Today, I'll be talking to Opal Spanda, a human rights lawyer for children, who is going to share information on legal resources available to victims and survivors of child sexual exploitation. My name is Opal Sibanga and I am a human rights lawyer, uh, more particularly a child rights lawyer. Um, I got my LLB from the University of Zimbabwe and then last year I acquired a Master of Laws in um, Human Rights and Democratization in Africa from the University of Pretoria. So I'm currently working as a legal research assistant, or I can say an intern at the Secretariat of the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child. Um, it's actually a, a regional body at African level that monitors um, the implementation of the African Children's Charter um, by state parties in Africa. What do you understand about exploitation of minors, especially in relation to COVID-19? My understanding of child sexual exploitation is actually a form of um, sexual abuse in, um, in which a person or a persons actually take advantage of a power or imbalance to force or entice a child into engaging in sexual activity in uh, return for something received by the child and all those um, perpetrating or facilitating the, the abuse. So whilst I'm still talking about sexual exploitation, I think it's also important to maybe talk about child sexual abuse because we know that when you're talking about sexual exploitation, there's this aspect of you know, engaging in um, sexual activity with the child in return for something. And then we also have... Um, instances of child sexual abuse, um, which encompasses any act that involves the child in any activity for the sexual gratification of another. And we have uh, many examples, for example, rape, which is non-consensual sexual intercourse. We have aggravated indecent assault and we have also indecent assault. And then on that aspect also, I think it's also important to highlight that sexual exploitation or harassment of minors or child sexual abuse, it 
happens either in the offline environment or in the online environment, we appreciate that there's been an increase in the use of technology, you know, these days. And also with the COVID-19 pandemic, we see that most people's lives were pushed to the online environment. We see children doing online classes, some are spending most of their time online playing games or interacting with their friends. And at the same time, they are actually exposed to um, sexual exploitation or abuse, for example, cases of online grooming and also um, exposure to child pornography and, and issues like that. So I think you also asked maybe my understanding on sexual exploitation of minors um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Yes. Okay, so maybe what I can highlight is that um, I'll talk from the context of Zimbabwe, where I come from, that even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we had um, a high number of cases involving sexual exploitation and abuse of minors. But now we can see that with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's, there has been an increase, like reports indicate that there's been an increase in the number of uh, cases of child sexual exploitation and abuse. And we note that the pandemic and particularly the measures taken to contain and uh, mitigate the virus are associated with a range of secondary impacts on sexual exploitation and abuse of children. And you look at the fact that there is no sufficient attention to preventing and responding to sexual exploitation and abuse of children in the COVID-19 response and recovery measures. Um, therefore, we see that children's rights are actually threatened. And then so looking at the response measures that were adopted by Zimbabwe, they put in place, amongst other measures and lockdown measures that saw um, or that rather that resulted in the restrictions of movements and also the, the closure of schools. So, you know, the steps taken to contain the spread of the virus, including the quarantines, um, social distancing and the movement restrictions I'm talking about, or the stay-at-home measures have actually increased the risks of sexual exploitation and abuse. And this is um, attributed to the forced coexistence and curtailed access to support services for for um to support services for survivors. So looking at children, we note that children are, are no longer going to school. So which means that children are most of the time spending time um, at home, most probably with their abusers. Um, unlike long back when there would be in schools and in schools, we know that if the, um, the environment is safe, children can actually be protected from abuse or they can even have the opportunity to report such cases to their teachers. But now with children are confined to the home environment with um, perpetrators of abuse, they are actually more vulnerable and it also becomes difficult for them to report, for example, how do they leave the home, the house? How do they even make a call knowing that the abuser is there? So I can say that is my understanding of sexual exploitation and abuse of children during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then maybe I can also um, maybe give you a few statistics. For example, this month, the month of April, 
um, it has been reported that there was a major rise in teenage pregnancies in Zimbabwe, which is an indication of child sexual exploitation and abuse during the pandemic. So from the period January and February, nearly 5,000 girls were reported to be pregnant and whilst 1,800 actually got married. And then there have been also reports of children in, engaging in transactional sex, um, for example, in areas such as Mazowe, which is a mining town. Um, in March to June last year, there were 350 reports of children having sex in exchange for money or gifts, which is actually double the previous year. And then we also have areas where there are water shortages, so children are not going to school, they find themselves in formal queues, and there have been reports of poor marshals requesting for sexual favours um, from girls in return for a place at the front, thereby exposing children to, you know, sexual exploitation and abuse. So, yeah, that's what I can say. Wow, you said it a lot, and I have a lot of follow-up questions on what you said. Uh, to begin with, uh, the issue you just recently spoke about, about uh, child marriages uh, during the pandemic. Uh, previously, I've talked to other social workers who even stated the issue about mining towns being uh, enclaves of um, social harassment for young women. And uh, during one of uh, the interviews, uh, one of the social workers said, that even families are encouraging uh, these relationships because they are getting money or food in return. Uh, as a lawyer, how do you assist children who find themselves being forced upon uh, these artisanal minors or these um, arranged marriages by the family so that they can continue to gain maybe money or food as a benefit from the marriage? Okay, thank you for that. So maybe I should begin by highlighting that in Zimbabwe, child marriages are prohibited. And um, according to the constitution, we define a child as someone below the age of 18. And the Marriages Act actually prohibits, um, you know, children or the marriage of children below the age of 18 years. So as a lawyer, I would say, first of all, um, when maybe faced with the case of uh, child marriage, um, the first um, port of call is to actually um, identify other stakeholders who can actually help the child in this process. So first of all, when you consider the age of the child, you know, for example, we have the age of consent, age of consent to sexual intercourse in Zimbabwe, it's age 16. So I or we actually advise the children or the guardians to actually report the case of, you know, child marriage, because if it's prohibited, which means it's a crime or in the event that the parents are actually supporting, then it's even up to us to then report the case so that the the perpetrator can actually be arrested. And then we also work with um, departments such as the social welfare, um, departments such as child bank, for example, in Zimbabwe, that's, you know, when they can actually offer psychosocial support to the child involved. They offer counselling and then, if possible, link the child with any other organisations that can um, maybe offer the child with... Um, um, I'm forgetting the name of 
livelihood skills, you know, so that because, like you mentioned, that it's in mining towns whereby children are forced to get married and probably the driver is poverty. So, you know, children can actually be then linked with organizations that can offer them with skills, training, so that they can be able to sustain themselves instead of um, resorting to, to marriage. Yeah. Recently, there was a case that was reported of a 13-year-old who solicited uh, services from a prostitute. And uh, this happened during the pandemic. And I understand that the lady was um, uh, acquitted. She was let go by the judge. But in such situations, uh, how do you then advise young people, our children, that such behavior is wrong? And as um, a lawyer, uh, how do you feel like maybe the law might have let down the 13-year-old boy or how can we then move from that situation to help our children not to fall prey into such uh, situations in the future? Okay. All right. Thank you very much. So um, at first I was following the case, but now I don't know the position, but I think my understanding was that she was granted bail and some of the reasons it was said that it's because it's the boy who actually solicited for sex and not the other way around. But what I can say is, first of all, the child was not wrong at all because when you're looking at children, you look at their ages. They are very young, so sometimes they do not understand the consequences of their actions. And according to the law, if we say children below the age of 16 are not capable or are not able to consent to sexual intercourse, which means this child, even if he solicited for sexual intercourse with this woman, when you're looking at his age, the law does not protect the girl child only, but it also protects boys. And I'll make examples where I used to work um, in Zimbabwe, where we had incidences of girls who would solicit for sex or maybe call their boyfriends, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, calling their boyfriends, please come and have sexual intercourse with me. But then when you report this case, when you go to court, we actually say this child is below the age of 16, which means she was not able to consent for um, to sexual intercourse. And according to the law, the perpetrator is actually prosecuted and is found guilty for having sexual intercourse with the young person. So now my question was, if it's a boy, why don't we have the same protection? So I would say this boy child is actually entitled to the same protection that is afforded to children. Of course, she might not be found guilty of um um, rape because with women they say it's aggravated indecent assault but she should also be found guilty of um, having sexual intercourse with a young person yes we understand it's the child who initiated the whole thing but when we look at our law we say before uh, below the age of 16 a child is not able to consent so that woman should be prosecuted and depending on you know the judge or the, the magistrate sitting before that matter and the circumstances of the case, she should be convicted for having sexual intercourse with a young person. And then also, I think since I'm highlighting that, 
with children. They are, they are young. They do not understand the consequences of their actions. So it's also important. It's not up to organizations, but it's also important for parents to have such talks with children. I know in my country, it's, it seems like it's a taboo for parents or guardians to engage with their children about, you know, the dangers of having sexual intercourse at a very young age. But I think it's really important to educate children about the dangers of, you know, having sexual intercourse at a young age and so that, you know, children can be able to you know, conduct themselves in such a way that they either do not find themselves um, being accused of having sexual intercourse with maybe very young children or maybe to find themselves uh, maybe, um, you know, having a situation whereby they have sexual intercourse and then the, the person or the partner or I don't know how to say is then brought before a court of law for infringing the, the laws of the country. So I would say it's really good to engage with children, educate them about what the law says about sexual intercourse at a very young age. Yeah. There have been instances where victims have complained about local authorities on how they have failed victims of sexual harassment Um by not taking serious uh, sexual harassment cases and uh, viewing them as family disputes, uh, returning them back home to say, you guys, this we cannot deal with such cases. Uh, go back and uh, deal with this as a family dispute or a family conflict. As a lawyer, have you met such cases in the past? How have you dealt with such issues? And how have you made sure that uh, local authorities are also uh, conscious about such uh, situations that happen behind closed doors? I am aware of um, cases whereby local authorities can be traditional leaders or religious leaders or community leaders who advise, you know, the parents or the, the survivor or the victim to actually go and settle the cases out of court. So personally, um, um, in my work, I haven't dealt with such a case, but I would say on a personal level, I've had um, a situation where someone asked me for advice um, in a case involving a child who had actually been sexually abused by a neighbor. And then the parents um, were scared to report, or some of the community members were saying, you don't have to report because the neighbor will go to jail or, or things like that. So. What I would say is that cases of child sexual abuse should never, ever be negotiated at family level or at community level. I strongly encourage um, survivors of child sexual abuse or even their guardians to, to report such cases because at the end of the day, you know, even if they settle the matter out of court. It's not even the victim who benefits because they can say you have to pay a certain amount of money, but that money does not even benefit the child. So it's not like I'm saying the money should go to the child. What I'm saying is cases should not be resolved um, at family level. All cases should actually be reported. And it's um, very necessary to ensure that there is continuous engagement with local authorities, 
parents, community leaders, traditional leaders and religious leaders and encourage them to report cases of child sexual abuse, particularly highlighting the dangers of, um, you know, solving those cases at community level because at the end of the day, the child might even be more vulnerable because the perpetrator may even abuse the child again and again, knowing that the case will not be reported. So it's very important to educate them and tell them about the 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 importance of reporting such cases. And I would also say that it might also be, you know, it's it's good to have laws that make um um the reporting of child sexual exploitation and abuse cases compulsory. And in the event that someone is found to be um trying to hide the case or trying to settle the matter out of court, I think those people should be arrested because in such a way they are actually violating, you know, the the rights of the child involved. Thank you. What is the proper procedure to report such uh, cases? What stages or steps should people take or follow while when they want to report uh, sexual harassment issues? Because uh, some of the people, they are not reporting these cases because maybe they don't know how to report such cases or they don't even know who to go to during uh, uh, such cases, who to talk to and how to even talk about these things. First of all, it's important for the survivor. I prefer using the term survivor. So it's um, very important to the survivor to report the case to someone who is actually um, trusted to them. It can be a parent or a close family member or in instances whereby the abuse has been perpetrated by the parent or the close family member, um, they can report to maybe their church elders or at school or even the police. So I would say it's very important for them to report cases of child sexual exploitation and abuse to the nearest police station. And also people don't know that there is a separate unit um, in police station that deals with cases of, um, you know, child sexual abuse. So there is a unit, it's called the victim-friendly unit, because, you know, when you just go to another unit, there'll be people reporting cases of theft, there are cases of murder, and, you know, all sorts of cases, and the child involved might not be comfortable to report such a case. So every police station actually has a victim-friendly unit where children or other survivors can actually report um, cases of child sexual exploitation in a child-friendly environment. And also there are organizations where people can report such cases. Um, for example, there, there is Childline, there are also there is also Sasa project. There are many civil society organizations where people can um, report such cases. But I would say the very, very, very first thing to do is to report to the police so that investigations can be done. So in terms of time, um, it's always recommended or advised that um, cases of child sexual abuse should be reported within 72 hours. The advantage being that within the 72 hours when the child involved goes for medical examination, 
the abuse is still fresh, which means the doctor, the doctor who's going to examine the child will be able to tell that this child has really been sexually abused. Because if someone has been raped, remember this use of force, which means that probably there'll be bruises and, you know, scars um, in the child's private parts. So they always, or we always encourage reporting of cases within 72 hours because it will also be able to help in the evidence, you know, the medical report showing that indeed this child was raped as opposed to reporting cases maybe after a month where there is no sign of bruises or anything. And then you see a perpetrator actually saying the medical report just says there's proof of sexual intercourse, but there's no evidence of force being used or things like that. But it's not like if 72 hours has lapsed, one does not have to report people still have to report such cases because as um, um, law officers we understand that there are some perpetrators who use threats, um, they intimidate um, survivors, so sometimes it can be difficult for them to report. So even if 72 hours has lapsed, it's always encouraged to report such cases. Yeah. What uh, kind of services are you offering as an organization? to survivors and also victims of sexual harassment during this time of uh, COVID-19? Okay. So, um, so like I highlighted that the organization I'm working for actually is at um, regional level, which means that we are not working directly with the survivors of child sexual exploitation and abuse, but we are actually um, working closely with um, member states to ensure that um, they um, they honor their obligations on the protection and promotion of children's rights, particularly on the you know the right to be protected from sexual exploitation and abuse um, during this pandemic. And we are closely monitoring the situation um, in various African countries to ensure that um, you know the countries actually make sure that there's enforcement of the law and perpetrators are actually um, prosecuted for, for child rights violations. Yeah, that's what I can say. What advice can you leave for parents, children who may find themselves in uh, sexual harassment situations? Uh, what can you tell them uh, or what can you encourage them to do for them to get uh, help and uh, also to get support during uh, such a difficult time. Okay, thank you. So first of all, I would say to parents, I think parents should normalize talking to children about issues of uh, sexual activity and they should encourage their children to talk around them and tell them if something sent to them or if someone has um, sexually abused them. And um, also, I would encourage them these days, um, for example, we have child line in Zimbabwe where someone can report a case via the phone. So I encourage them to not to feel guilty because there are situations where the child can feel guilty and maybe say, I'm the one responsible for being raped. So my advice is Children should not feel guilty. They are not wrong if the other party is wrong. So I encourage them not to be afraid, but 
to report such cases. If possible, if there's a police station nearby, they should go to police stations. If the abuse is being perpetrated by a neighbor or a family member, they should try by all means to use their phones or the very moment they get a chance to get outside the house, they should try by all means that they report the case so that um, justice can be served. Yeah, that's what I can say. Due to COVID-19 lockdowns imposed by many countries, some homes have become enclaves of cruelty and violence for children trapped with abusive family members. Harmful gender stereotypes embedded in social and cultural norms ensure that women and girls who dare to report violence and abuse become subject to social rejection for failing to conform to gender roles. However, there are lawyers in our communities who are willing to assist victims and survivors. It is never too late to report a crime. In Devela, we say, which means a crime does not expire, a prescription still applies. If you are looking for legal assistance, please contact Justice for Children on 0242 or send them an email at admin at jctrust.co.zw or contact Legal Resources Foundation on their toll-free number 0808-0402 or send them an SMS on 0787-108-721.